The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host and chair of AHLA's Fraud and Abuse Practice Group, Matt Wetzel. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. With me today are Kristen Carter, a partner at Baker Donaldson based in Baltimore, and Joe Wolf, partner at Hall Render based in Milwaukee. Kristen and Joe serve as vice chairs of educational programming for AHLA's Fraud and Abuse Practice Group. Kristen, Joe, welcome. As you know, the last few weeks have proven to be an exciting time to be a healthcare lawyer. I can't think of the last time we've seen such significant and comprehensive uh, new and updated regulations and guidance coming out of HHS in such a short span of time. The most significant of which, and the topic of our conversation today, being HHS's updates to the Stark regulations and the anti-kickback statute safe harbors to address value-based arrangements and care coordination the regulatory sprint uh, has finished. In this edition of the Fraud and Abuse podcast, we're talking about the new Stark and anti-kickback regs. What are the big ticket items? What's top of mind for healthcare lawyers? What should our members be thinking about as we digest and prepare for their implementation? And 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 what are what are top of mind for our uh, our uh, practice group leaders? So, Kristen, I might want to start with you. There's been a lot to digest these past few weeks. Would love to hear your initial reactions uh, on the new regs and, uh, and and what do you think are some of the most important uh, highlights for our members? Sure, and I think I'll start by talking about um, you know the adoption of the value-based arrangement uh, exceptions on the the Stark side and safe harbors on the AKS side. Um, I think these have been much anticipated regulations to provide additional flexibility to parties that are considering entering into um, value-based care coordination type arrangements to to remove some of those regulatory barriers that they you know tend to butt up against when they start working on these type of arrangements under the existing regulations Um, you know sometimes it can be a challenge when parties are looking at these you know how do we squarely fit this in an exception when we're confined to fair market value, but we want to be able to pay based on on the value of services. How do we value that? Um, you know, also some of the restrictions on payments related to the volume or value of referrals that they've really loosened those within these regulations to create new exceptions and safe harbors to allow for flexibility of parties working together towards value-based purposes um, and value-based arrangements. And they've left a lot of flexibility in these uh, safe harbors and exceptions. Um, They do require quite a bit of um, review of definitions that that go along with these uh, provisions. Um, But within that, you know, they leave a lot of flexibility in terms of what can be a value-based entity that's taking advantage of these rules. Um, you know, they don't dictate a particular type of entity. Parties can work together, um, different types of value-based participants. Um, you know, one of the things that I think when we were looking at these under the proposed rule that we were hoping for, and a lot of people submitted comments on, 
relates to the fact that the rules really are different under the, the CMS paradigm versus the OIG requirements under the anti-kickback statute. Um, both agencies uh, within HHS responded to those comments to, to mention that, you know, while they coordinated together to develop these, and you see this with overlapping definitions and um, common elements between the two uh, sets of provisions, they are deliberately distinct and they couldn't fully align them. And I think actually probably have more distinctions than most parties would care for because of just the difference in the, the statutes that you're addressing. So, you know, Stark is a strict liability payment rule. So you have to check off every box in order to fit in an exception. Whereas the anti-kickback statute safe harbors are, you know, relate to a criminal intent-based statute and really are intended to just um, provide protection under that criminal statute when you meet all of the elements. But, you know, complying with a safe harbor is voluntary um, if you meet all the all the elements, you would be, you know, your your relationships under that statute would be protected. So I was really excited that they, you know, went ahead and finalized these rules. Um, you know, there's a lot of detail involved, but you know, as a general framework, you know, to the 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 more risk that the parties are willing to take on from a payment perspective, the more flexibility these safe harbors and exceptions have. Whereas, but there still is some opportunity under the exceptions and safe harbors to enter into an arrangements where either the value-based entity or the physician decided not to take on risk, um, but those have a lot more limitations. Kristen, um, you know, uh, we heard uh, over the past few days from uh, Deputy Secretary Hargan uh, in another HLA podcast, and something that really struck me about that conversation with our CEO, David Cade, uh, was his focus on these new uh, um, safe harbors as a platform. Uh, what do you think that means, and how do you think uh, uh, providers, uh, industry, uh, healthcare participants, will innovate in reaction to this new platform? Sure, I think, I think what, what's intended by that is that the, the regs, while they include um, you know, elements you have to meet, they are not overly prescriptive. They allow, you know, they, they, any arrangements you enter into have to be driving towards a value-based purpose, but those value-based purposes are pretty broad. So the um, definition of a value-based purpose could be coordinating and managing care of a target patient population. There's a lot of flexibility on how you define that target patient, patient population, whether it's based on payer status or um, you know, various ailments. Um, you, there's a lot of flexibility on how you define it as long as you aren't defining it based on sort of financial reasons such as cherry picking, you know, low cost patients or something like that. Um, these types of arrangements could be designed to improve the quality of care for the, the target patient population, but they're not defining um, exactly how the value-based enterprise defines what those quality measures that it might be um, driving towards are. 
um, appropriately reducing costs to or growing expenditures of payers without reducing the quality or you know the value-based purpose might be something that's transitioning uh, care from a, a volume-based um, system to a value-based. So there's a lot of flexibility on what might fit within these various definitions and I think you know what uh, Deputy Secretary Hargan was was honing in on is that they didn't want to be prescriptive here. They want the industry to drive the innovation, but they have to have the safeguards in place, um, you know, that come through in these exceptions and safe harbors to ensure they're they're allowing the industry to innovate while also, you know, maintaining the requirements that are on them from a statutory standpoint to also curb, you know, fraud and abuse within those arrangements. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those are good points. And, you know, from my own perspective, of course, I, I've spent my career in the life sciences. So my eye is immediately drawn to the definitions in uh, the OIG's uh, kickback uh, rule uh, and specifically the various exclusions for uh, drug companies, medical device companies, uh, laboratory companies and uh, DME suppliers and DME makers. Um, of course, I had hoped to see changes uh, moving from the proposed to the final regs that would allow full participation under the safe harbors for those entities. Um, uh, you know, but but I, I did take a little bit of solace in the fact that first, um, HHS I think is trying to acknowledge. Uh, that there's the, the innovation that these value-based arrangements bring, just like you talk about, Kristen. And I think that with their, um, with their exclusion of drug device and DME and lab companies, I did appreciate um, their call out that this doesn't mean that these entities can't participate in a value-based arrangement. I think, uh, you know, the industry, my industry, like sciences, is certainly chomping at the bit to innovate um, both in terms of technology, but uh, but delivery of care. And so it's not that we can't participate, we just have to find protection under the uh, under a, a, an existing safe harbor or um, you know need to be engaged in such a way that it would not on its face violate the anti-kickback statute. So certainly the definitions in there are really of critical importance, just like you say, Kristen, for myself included. And you know, thinking about definitions, Joe, uh, I know you and I have talked about the big three under Stark many times uh, over the course of this podcast and, and just in our personal conversations, fair market value, commercial reasonableness, and volume and value. What did we see coming out of CMS uh, on the big three, so to speak, under Stark? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And um, I'm glad we're able to step through all this. Um, you know, thinking about the big three, again, the FMV, commercial reasonableness, and the volume or value standard, CMS had a lot to say um, in the final rule. Um, in, the, in the initial pre-publication version of the regs, there was around 100 pages just on these three issues. Um, every, everyone who works in this space knows that the big three are important because they've been at the center of all of the enforcement um, around Stark, especially in recent years. Um, most of the um, Stark exceptions uh, focus or require these big three. So they're, they're a big part of, of any healthcare organization's compliance strategy. Uh, so the government uh, came out now and said uh, they've looked at the request for information back in 2018 and the responses to the proposed rule in 2019. And they're, they're trying to bring some clarity uh, to the big three. 
And so they did a few things. Um, first, they, they clarified um, throughout the commentary and in some of the regulatory changes that these big three are separate and distinct concepts. So for example, the fair market value uh, definition previously had a, a cross-reference to the volume or value standard that really conflated both definitions and created confusion. Now in this final uh, regulations, the government's saying these are separate and distinct concepts. Um, the second thing they did is they revised the definition of fair market value and built in a new definition of, of general market value uh, into the regulations. And uh, what that means is they've broken up the, the definitions um, a bit so that you can almost choose your own path um, within the definition of fair market value. Um, with respect to um, whether it's a, a definition of, of general application or with respect to the general market value definition, if you're going to work through an asset acquisition or compensation for services or, or rental of equipment or office space, you can, you can work through the definition and use the modifiers that pertain to your situation. Um, the third thing they did is defined commercially reasonable that had never been defined before. Um, and that, that was important because you know, we were working again without a definition um, for a long time and we were relying on some old commentary um, around commercial reasonableness. This new definition focuses on whether the arrangement is furthering a legitimate business purpose of the parties to the arrangement and whether it's, a sensible, it's sensible considering the characteristics of the parties including their size, type, scope, and specialty. So it's really getting at you know, what are the what is the what are the goals of the organization and is it a legitimate business purpose a big big change to uh, here as well was the clarification at the end of this definition that an arrangement would still be commercially reasonable uh, even if it didn't result in a profit for one or more of the parties really getting at something that had been pled in several of the recent cases that if you enter into an arrangement with uh, the with losses whether they're actual or anticipated perhaps that was a commercial reasonableness issue. Here, the government's saying that that's not controlling uh, in the analysis. Uh, fourth, CMS proposed new special rules uh, to identify more objectively when compensation would take into account uh, the volume or value of a physician's referrals, and, and that's a big piece here. And then I think last, and, and, and I'll hit on that one more time, um, and last, and this is, the, the government used this as an opportunity to revisit and reaffirm some of its prior positions. Uh, notably, in, in some recent cases, there was a, some discussion around or concerns around uh, paying physicians based on their personal productivity if there was a correlation uh, to you know, facility fees or, or referrals. And the government uh, clarified again here, just because there's corresponding hospital services that are billed out that doesn't, that you can still pay a physician uh, a productivity bonus and, that, and that's not going to, going to be on its face a violation of the volume or value standards. So it came right out and clarified that again here. Um, so those are the big picture items. The, in, in stepping, I just want to step back to that um, test on the volume or value standard because it was so significant. Um, in this final rule, the government is proposing a two-part test, and if a compensation arrangement fails this two-part test, uh, you, the, the thinking is you would have an issue under this volume or value standard. So if you have a mathematical formula 
that's used to calculate the amount of a physician's compensation that includes the DHS, uh, it would trigger the test. And you, you also have to have um, a situation where the amount of compensation correlates with the number or value of the physician's referrals. So, uh, you know, going forward, healthcare organizations are going to have to look at how this test lines up against their compensation models. Um, in a related part of the regulations and commentary, the government also uh, talked about um, what, are, what are often referred to as the directed referral requirements. And, and anyone who's worked in this space knows that you can put in a provision in a physician's employment agreement or a professional services agreement, a provision that, that, that indicates a physician would direct um, referrals to a particular um, provider, practitioner, or supplier, as long as you build in certain carve-outs um, from the regulations. The government here um, is amending those rules to say that the existence of a compensation, neither the existence of a compensation arrangement nor the amount of the compensation can be contingent on the volume or value of the referrals to a pr particular practitioner, provider, practitioner, or supplier. And the, but the requirement to make referrals to a particular provider, practitioner, or supplier um, can require that the physician refers an established percentage or ratio of their referrals. And so this is going to um, set up a situation where healthcare organizations should be thinking about any directive referral provisions they have in their contracts now and to see whether those, um, how, how they're implementing those um, is, is still workable uh, under these new regulations. It seems that um, there are two issues, situations that come to mind. One is the, the government called out uh, situations where a physician's, uh, the existence of their arrangement is somehow triggered uh, by one of these directed referral provisions. And they mention an example of a cardiologist that's employed and there is a, um, and, and the physician has a directed referral provision in their contract um, with the carve outs we talked about. And that when the healthcare organization is negotiating an extension, uh, there would be a problem if the hospital increased compensation only if the targeted referrals were made or if they refused to renew employment because of the referrals. And so um, this is a bit, this is different than where we were before. Um, so that's the contingent, the arrangement being contingent on the existence of the arrangement. The second scenario is one where the compensation is actually driven by the referral requirement. Um, the government talked about um, a, a situation there as well, and I'm not going to go into it, but um, a situation where uh, potentially a physician's uh, compensation uh, could appropriately uh, be set uh, based on their ratio of referrals um, and, and that, you know, they, they emphasize that you could have a directed referral requirement based on an established percentage um, of a physician's referrals. And so if that um, referral requirement included a percentage, uh, even if the arrangement provided for a termination of the compensation arrangement, if they failed to meet that certain percentage, um, it would not run afoul of the special rule. I, and I'm sure Kristen would agree this analysis is very complex. I would just say if you have direct referral provisions in your arrangements, this seems to indicate you should just have them looked at. If, if your organization is not using uh, direct referral 
requirements operationally to, to make termination decisions or to um, or, then, then perhaps you could live with the existence of it in a contract um, as long as it's not operationalized. Um, if your compensation is being driven by these directive referral requirements, I think you need to do a bit more analysis to make sure you're lining up with this new regulatory framework. So definitely lots of complexity, Matt, uh, here, but I, I think these changes are important. Um, and, and I think they do give us more of a bright line standard uh, as we think about the Stark Law. And, and always very helpful, Joe, and thanks so much for that insight and perspective. You know, um, you mentioned a couple of things that might make uh, compliance at healthcare organiz organizations a bit easier, uh, you know, the bright line of and clear definitions um, always certainly help. I know um, in my own work and thinking about um, uh, some of the uh, revisions, both to the Stark uh, regulations and to the kickback statute safe harbors, for me, I see some practical um, use in some of the changes to the warranty safe harbor and um, uh, the liberalization of some of the um, requirements there, which I think really help uh, entities uh, who are, um, you know, trying to support uh, innovative um, warranties that would, you know, perhaps, um, uh, you know, allow for greater innovation and flexibility. I might ask you, Kristen, what areas in um, the kickback statute, safe harbors and the revisions, um, where do you see um, uh, some of those changes making compliance easier or helping healthcare organizations comply a little bit? Uh, in, in a little bit easier way. Sure, Matt. So I think one of the, the bigger changes in my view is the uh, flexibility that's been added to the personal services and management contract safe harbor. The OIG updated that safe harbor, which previously had limited utility at times because the aggregate compensation under the current rule had to be set in advance. So you had to know the full amount that you were paying your independent contractor over the term of the agreement in order to qualify for, for the safe harbor. And similarly, if it was a part-time arrangement, the uh, safe harbor would have required that a schedule be set in advance. Um, they've updated recognizing that that caused a lot of arrangements to fall outside of the safe harbor. They have updated it to allow um, that the methodology, similar to the Stark Law, needs to be set in advance. So you need to be able to say the formula um, that the independent contractor is going to be paid under, but you don't necessarily need to know what the full amount of the compensation is going to be at the outset of the arrangement. And in addition, they've eliminated that requirement that part-time arrangements have a schedule set out in a written agreement. Another really useful um, change in my view that they made was related to the EHR donation safe harbor. Um, I would see a lot of providers get tripped up on the requirement that um, the recipient of that EHR donation had to pay the 15% in advance, or, or yeah, in advance. That, has not been eliminated fully, but they've provided some additional flexibility as to when that the payments can be made on a regular schedule as opposed to in advance of receiving the donation. So provided some additional flexibilities there. 
Thanks so much, Kristen. I, and I, I agree with you on the personal services safe harbor as well. Um, you know, in addition to the changes for um, the periodic or sporadic services, part-time services, there was also the addition of the outcomes-based payment, um, uh, a new subpart uh, to that safe harbor. Of course, uh, you know, the life sciences industries, drug device, et cetera, are um, not, uh, are technically excluded from that. Uh, but I do believe it demonstrates that OIG is, is taking a little bit more of a forward-thinking approach towards uh, its safe harbors. And for those entities who um, are eligible for, for the safe harbor uh, to uh, help them comply a little bit more easily and, and, and practically. Um, Joe, you mentioned a couple of these areas, but I wonder if there's any um, particular spots in the Stark uh, uh, regulations, uh, the revisions to the Stark regulations, I should say, uh, that would help healthcare organizations compliance uh, and, and, and make it a little bit easier, a little bit more practical. Yeah, man, I think there are. Um, I mentioned earlier that the government went back here, CMS went back here and gave some examples. I think that the examples they gave are going to be really helpful for, for organizations as they think about complying with uh, the fair market value and commercial reasonableness and volume of value standards. So I would encourage organizations to look at those examples uh, when they do their analysis. Uh, there, for, there, there was one that, that j jumps out at me. It's uh, the, the government had talked about this in the proposed and the final rules about this rock star orthopedic surgeon that justifies higher levels of compensation above the, the normal salary survey percent not percentiles and use that in as, as an example to say, hey, look, the percentiles in the industry don't govern or don't control the analysis when we start thinking about fair market value. And so I think that that commentary uh, can be helpful, especially if an organization is looking to uh, recruit um, and, and, and bring in a physician that uh, in an area of, of high need, there may be um, considerations that could be built into the record to justify higher levels of compensation. So I think that's gonna be important for organizations. Then I think you have um, in, in the commercial reasonableness uh, commentary, there's discussion of you know, overlapping or, or duplicative medical director arrangements being problematic. And I, I think we all know that. Um, and the volume or value standard for testing compensation arrangements, there were several examples of, of, of situations where that volume or value standard may be tripped. Um, so I, I think I would look to those examples, but then I'd also look to the technical uh, cleanups that we saw um, being built in and the new exceptions being built into Stark. I think it's just gonna make things easier for compliance professionals. Um, we're gonna have a new limited position remuneration exception that is going to cover situations where um, physicians are paid less than $5,000. So if you uh, need a stand-in medical director um, and it's on short notice and you're, you're just going to pay them, you know, a, a few hundred dollars per hour during that medical director shift, um, the, you know, that physician could come in and do the work. And as long as those terms are set in advance and it's consistent with fair market value and is commercially reasonable, the fact that you don't have a writing in place and, no, and without a signature is not going to be problematic. So that's gonna be a big deal uh, for those unique one-off situations. As long as you're under that $5,000 threshold, you're gonna be okay. Um, the government is giving us um, new language around reconciling compensation 
Um, if there are discrepancies in payment under the arrangement that can occur within 90 days of the end of that uh, calendar days after the end of that arrangement, that's going to help um, protect and insulate arrangements that may have glitch issues uh, during their term and they can be cleaned up afterwards. Um, the government's giving us new writing and signature requirements. We've, we, we've at least since 2016, have had a clear path to 90 days to get the signature in place. Now we have 90 days to also get the writing in place uh, for an arrangement after it starts. Um, you know, the, the, the financial terms still need to be set in advance. And, and, and as you can see in the commentary, that can be achieved through uh, 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 several ways now, and there's even discussion about text messages uh, in the commentary, but the idea here is that you can get that writing and signature in place within 90 days. That's going to give a little bit of breathing room um, in, in case the contracting process doesn't quite catch up with, with a new service arrangement. Um, in the office space lease exception, uh, the, the government is revising the exclusive use re requirement to allow multiple lessees to use the space or equipment as long as it's to the exclusion of the lessor. I think that that's going to be helpful because organizations will be able to look to the lease exception more, you know, previously if they had shared usage among the lessees, they were probably looking to the timeshare exception. Um, but now I think you can look to the lease exception itself if you have um, multiple lessees in that space. Uh, at, at, at once. The, the government also is um, allowing for uh, the usage of the fair market value exception with respect to leases. And so that, that was a good to see as well. Um, on the physician recruitment exception, right now practices, if, if, the, if the dollars are just a flow through to the recruited physician, just as a pass through, then the practices no longer need to sign that recruitment agreement. Um, so th those are just a, a few of the, the technical uh, changes and there, and there are several more and, and so I think CMS really did come through on, on making uh, relieving some of the burdens related to technical compliance and I think that was partly due to them taking a look back at the RFI responses and also some of the self-disclosures they were they were getting in that sure. they didn't feel rose to program abuse so those are some thoughts. Absolutely no thank you Joe I think that's great and you know I might conclude our discussion today by asking each of you, you know, are there any parts of the rule that uh, or the proposed rules that the government didn't act on and you wish they had? Was there a wish list that you had hoped to see but didn't? Where do you want the government to go moving forward? I can tell you from my own perspective, I do hope that the government continues to re-examine uh, its approach to uh, the device, drug, and laboratory industries. I think there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration and innovation that might be chilled um, due to uh, the OIGs and CMS's language. Uh, but that having been said, I do appreciate the flexibility and innovative um, platform that they've developed with the new value-based rules. And I hope that we can see some further evolution. But Kristen, what about you? Any 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 parts of the wish list that you didn't get? And and uh, and where would you like to see the government go with this? Uh, I would say the big one on the value base is just that the, the rules are um, very distinct in pieces. So I think there's gonna be arrangements that parties, um, for example, DHS entities and physicians can fit within a stark exception, but not, might not fit cleanly into a um, AKS safe harbor. So I think it'll be 
you know, I, I, I was hoping for more alignment there. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over time if, you know, these things become tested and people are, you know, driving that inter innovation through these value-based arrangements if, you know, we might see tweaks and changes to those in the future to further align them. Yeah, Matt, and I'll, I'll just jump in with some thoughts from my end. Um, I, I echo uh, Kristen's comments on trying to see the Stark and anti-kickback um, regs synced up. You know, perhaps uh, the next go round we'll be able to react to actual value-based arrangements um, and see more, um, more uniformity between the two approaches. Um, along those lines too, uh, the government, CMS did not react to situations where there may be a dual uh, financial arrangement going on, like physicians under employment, but then also another layer under a value-based enterprise. And I think their reaction from CMS, and it, it, it was likely the right reaction that um, organizations should may need to rely on um, multiple exceptions or different exceptions based on where those dollars are coming from. Perhaps after we have a chance to look at these value-based arrangements and react, we also will get some clarity around those, those dual situations. Um, but I, I think that this is definitely a step forward. Um, one other thought too, you know, maybe next go around, we, we might see um, some discussion around virtual care and telehealth specifically um, under the Stark regulations. I'm not sure if we need that at this point because I think CMS has said that quality um, and other types of, of uh, arrangements um, could fit into other exceptions, but um, it would be interesting to see if, if the government finds a way to specifically address telehealth and, and compensation for virtual care within these Stark um, regulations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kristen, Joe, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the AHLA Fraud and Abuse podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode soon. Thanks so much.